50 million pumpkin pies. And that's just what we're having for lunch today. Okay, maybe not. But on Thursday, we will gather in homes with family and friends to feast. And why do we do it? Well, to give thanks, right? Or at least ostensibly, that's why we gather, is to give thanks. What are we giving thanks for? Well, for everything we have. For we give thanks for our family, for friends, for jobs, for our health, for homes, for food, all of it. But often, what we don't slow down and realize is that there are massive assumptions baked into Thanksgiving, like the pumpkin into your pie. First, Thanksgiving assumes that what we have, we've been given. You don't give thanks for the things that you earned or the things that you bought. You're not like, well, thank you that I had to spend all this money or thank you that I deserve this. No, you say thanks for gifts that you've been given. The second thing Thanksgiving assumes is it assumes that there's a giver. We are giving thanks to someone for all the things we have. Thanksgiving always has someone on the other end of it. Every time thanks is given, there has to also be thanks receiving by someone on the other end. You don't give thanks to the void. Third, Thanksgiving assumes the things we've been given by the giver are good things that we enjoy. Sometimes, when I'm out mowing, I realize that some people have dumped trash on my lawn. That means there was a giver who gave me something I didn't earn, but I don't enjoy it. Therefore, I do not give thanks. Even though it's got two of the elements, it's not good, so I don't give thanks. Now, however, if you were to give me a donut that I don't deserve, that's a good thing, and I would give you thanks for it. I mean that. <laughs> anyway, so on Thursday, as you go around the table and everybody does their traditional, all right, everybody say one thing you're thankful for. As you're doing that, you are making a theological declaration, whether you intend to or not. Because if we are truly giving thanks for whatever you fill in that blank with, we are declaring we've been given gifts by a giver and his gifts are good. Those three things, gifts, giver, good. So I want you to have those in mind on Thursday and throughout this week. Gifts, giver, good. That's what you're saying every time you say, I'm thankful for blank. Now, we all know that just because we pause to give thanks for all that we have, that doesn't mean that everything in life is good and easy or free from pain and problems. But have you ever noticed how when there are hard things in your life, it can even make you more grateful for the good that's there as well? There's something about how the pleasures are sweeter because of the pain. But that's only if we have the right perspective. If we can step back and see our lives rightly. Because if we only focus on the hard things, we'll likely head toward despair. But on the other hand, if we ignore the painful realities of life and just only focus on the good things, we're stuck in denial. And neither of those brings joy. But if we can step back and see both the good and the hard from the right perspective, that's where we can find delight. And this morning, I didn't plan it this way, but the more I spent time in it, I realized this text 
is a great text for us as we head into Thanksgiving. Because it's a passage that steps back to let us get a big picture view of life. It's a passage that's meant to give us that perspective. See, on one hand, as you probably heard as we read it, it's brutally realistic and has no rose-colored glasses of denial. But on the other hand, it doesn't just leave us to wallow in despair. It has wisdom for how we ought to live this broken yet beautiful life. And so to help us figure out how to live, the preacher is going to show us two realities and then issue a call to respond. So here's our outline for today. He's going to show us something that's certain, the certainty of death, and then he's going to show us something that's very uncertain, the uncertainty of life. Now you notice I'm going out of order here, and that's because I, I think he kind of bookends these, and I want, to, I want to hammer the last one as his takeaway, which is because of the certainty of death and the uncertainty of life, enjoy the life God gives you. Okay, so that's where we're going. But let's jump in and see how we get there. Let's see what wisdom you find. Go back to verse 1. He says, But all this I laid to heart, examining it, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Okay, so here's what he's doing. If you're just joining us, he's kind of catching us up a little bit. Back in chapters 7 and 8, the preacher was wrestling with these questions about why life is not like a vending machine. Why is it that even when you put in the right things and push the right buttons, you still don't get what you expect? Why do good things sometimes happen to bad people? And why do bad things sometimes happen to good people? That's what he's been wrestling with. And at the end of chapter 8, he came to this conclusion in verses 16 and 17. He said, no matter how hard we try... No one can find out all the work of God. He says you can wrestle and rack your brain and go round and round and read all the things, but at the end of the day, you cannot know all that God is doing because he's doing 10,000 times more than you or I are able to see. And now in verse 1, he says that as he lays this all to heart, in other words, all the things he's been thinking about, realizing, and observing, here he comes to one massively important foundational conclusion. Our lives are in the hand of God. In other words, He is sovereign over every detail of every day. Life is not random. God is in control even if we can't figure it all out. That doesn't mean just because I don't understand it doesn't mean there's not a plan. doesn't mean that someone's not at the wheel. It just means I'm not that one. <laughs> so far, that's good. That's comforting to know that God is in control. But then he adds something that's very unsettling. And yet at the same time, I think it's very relatable. He says our lives are in God's hands, but if you just looked at the events of our lives, it would be really hard to tell whether God loves us or hates us. In other words, what he's saying is that if we based our ideas of whether God was happy with us or angry with us, only on our experience, we would have no idea which it is. Why is that? Because good things happen and bad things happen. And they both happen to all kinds of people. It'd be really easy to say, oh, I know who God's happy with because that's where all the good things happen. Or I know who he's unhappy with because that's where all the bad things. But it's not like that. It's not that cut and dry because 
bad things happen to God's people. And good things happen to those who hate God. So what do we make of this? He's troubled by this. And then he focuses in on one particular way that the same thing happens to both. Look at verse 2. He says, it is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil, he says, and all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. What he's highlighting for us here is that first point. He's highlighting for us the certainty of death. It does not matter who you are, how religious you are, how moral you are, or how immoral you are, or how unreligious you are, one day you will die. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the Christian and the non-Christian, the nice guy and the jerk, all of us end up in the ground. And this equality bothers the preacher. He says this is an evil done under the sun. What's evil about it? It upsets him the way death shows no distinction. He says, that's not the way it should be. Good guys shouldn't die. Wicked guys shouldn't get to keep living. And yet the one certainty that's inescapable is that we all will die. But why? Why is it that way? Why, why is there something in the preacher that feels like, no, it shouldn't be like that? If it, if it shouldn't be, then why is it? Well, that's what he reminds us of in the last part of verse 3. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil. That's the diagnosis of our terminal condition. Our hearts are sinful. We have rebelled against the God who made us and chose to live life our way instead of his. See, when God made us, when God made Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, he gave them everything they needed. They lacked for nothing. They wanted for nothing. And all he asked was for them to trust and obey him. That's it. He says, it's all yours. Enjoy it. Just trust me and obey me. He warned them that if you don't, there's going to be a consequence. And the consequence for disobedience was death. But Adam and Eve thought they knew better. They thought they could meet their own needs and satisfy their own desires apart from God. And so they took the fruit and they sinned. And because they did, they had to face the just punishment for their sin, which was death. But it wasn't just limited to Adam and Eve. This isn't just an interesting tale of days gone by. Romans 5 says, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, we all inherited their evil hearts. And we joined them both in their sin and in its penalty. So what we see in these first three verses is we know two things are true of all of us. If you're here this morning, this is you. 
I know two things about you. You are a sinner, and because of that, you will die. Every funeral we go to is a reminder of the awful consequences of sin. Now he goes on, though. In verse 4, he says, while there's life, there's hope. Look at verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So he's saying here that the living have an advantage over the dead. Because they still have a shot at experiencing some of this joy he's been telling us about. He says, the dead? No. They don't have that shot. It's gone. And he makes this point with this awesome proverb about dogs and lions. Um, One of the things I found interesting is this actually showed up in a Peanuts cartoon strip years ago. And uh, Snoopy is sitting on his doghouse typing away something. And Charlie Brown walks up. And he hands him the paper. Charlie Brown reads it and says, From the ninth chapter of Ecclesiastes, a dead dog or a living dog is better than a dead lion. And Charlie Brown looks back at Snoopy and says, What does that mean? Snoopy takes it, looks at it, and says, I don't know, but I agree with it. <laughs> so see, I mean, this is this is real stuff here, guys. So what is he talking about? See, back then, dogs weren't the cuddly, lovable pets that we think of now. Back then, Dogs were thought of as these dirty, despised scavengers. They were nasty. These were not like well-groomed, housebroken dogs. These were like mangy mutts, like in the alley, just eating that carcass of the dead animal. On the lion, on the other hand, they were revered as the, these royal, majestic beasts, the king of beasts. But what he's saying here is he's saying, look, it's better to be a nasty, mangy dog that's still alive than a majestic lion who's dead. You could put it into people terms. He's saying that it's better to be a homeless, broke, destitute person on the streets and be alive than to be the wealthiest person in the world and be dead. He says, yeah, sure, the living know they'll die one day. And you're like, well, that doesn't seem positive. Well, it is when he contrasts it. He says, but at least they know something. The dead, he says, don't know anything anymore. They have nothing. No more reward, no memory of them. All the emotions they felt so strongly, they're gone. And they'll have no more share in life under the sun. What the preacher wants us to reckon with here is the reality that death is certain. And when it comes, all the things we thought so important in this life, The things we loved, the things we hated, even the things that we envied, he says, they're all gone and forgotten. He says, you've got to understand this. You won't get life if you don't reckon with death, is what he wants us to see. Death is certain. But then, fast forward down to verse 11. There he's going to deal with the opposite problem. Because not only is death certain, But so much of life is uncertain, isn't it? If I could sum up verses 11 and 12 with three words, it would be, you never know. Right? We say that all the time. Like, well, you never know. Like, there's all these things that you assume will happen. 
I mean, I, one of the things I love about football and the NFL, the NFL has this phrase called any given Sunday. The idea is that it doesn't matter who the teams are playing. It can be the worst team versus the best team. Any given Sunday, anybody could beat anybody. You just don't know. And that's what he's saying here in verse 11. He's saying, life doesn't always go the way you think it will. Look what he says. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. He's given us all these, he's piling up examples of how unpredictable life is. He's saying, look, sometimes the fastest runner doesn't win the race. Maybe they stumble. Maybe it's just not their day. Maybe they get hurt. They don't always win. Sometimes the strongest warrior loses a fight. Sometimes the highly educated person ends up hungry, poor, and despised. Not at all what you would expect. Life often doesn't go the way we imagine. It's uncertain. Now the end of verse 11 says that the reason for this is because time and chance happen to them all. And that's a, it's a really unfortunate translation. The word for chance is just a happening. So what it's literally saying is time and happenings happen. Right? A happening is not necessarily, he's not saying this is some random, impersonal force called chance that controls life's outcomes. We know that's, what the preach, that's not what the preacher believes. All through the book, he's been reminding us that God sets the times and life is in his hands. Just told us that. So he's not saying, yeah, God does it, but there's also this other thing. No, no, he's saying God is in control, but from our perspective, sometimes things in life just happen. Like, I don't know why. I can't explain it because I'm not God. He says there's circumstances that change, situations pop up. There's things that you never saw coming, good or bad. Sometimes you go back to your high school reunion and the class clown who barely graduated, they wound up a millionaire. And you're like, what in the world? And then you look at most likely to succeed and they just never made it. How do you explain that? It's not what we expected. One of the ways we try to explain this is we have a phrase, we talk about being in the right place at the right time. That's what he's talking about. When things go well for people, that we're like, that guy's not even that good. He just happened to be at the right place at the right time. You're like, yep, that happens. And when something horrible happens to someone who didn't deserve it, we say, they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. What are they saying? Time and happenings happen to all. You don't know. You can't plan those. You can't expect them. They just happen. Why? Because life is uncertain. He says, not only are the events of life uncertain, so is the end of life. Look at verse 12. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. He's talking about death in verse 12. He's already told us that death is certain, but now he's telling us that when it comes, it's very uncertain. No one knows the day of our death. It can come suddenly and unexpectedly. And the picture he uses here, fish just swimming along. It's a grand old day in the Sea of Galilee. Not a care in the world. They're just swimming along, and all of a sudden from up above comes this net that just snatches them up. 
didn't see it coming. Or there's this bird just pecking for food along the ground. Again, just, man, he's had his fill. He's just a couple more bites of this delicious whatever birds eat on the ground. But then there's a snare that he doesn't see and he's gone. He says, that's the way death is. You don't always get a long lead up. You don't always get notice. It could be when you're 95 or it could be today. You don't know because life is uncertain. So if death is certain and life is uncertain, the biggest question that you and I need to answer is, am I ready? I know I'm going to die, but I don't know when. The biggest question I have to resolve is, am I ready? If death came for you today, would you be ready to stand before God and to answer for the way you've lived your life? The Bible says it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So just like we all will die, we all will stand before God. And the terrifying news is that as we stand before him for judgment, we, we already know what our hearts are like. We just saw it in verse 3. Our hearts are full of evil. We're going into the courtroom and we know that we did the crime. Ephesians 2 told us we are children of wrath. So the question is, what will be your defense before God? You know you're guilty. He knows you're guilty. What is your hope? The best news in the world is that God himself gave us our defense. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. That's the only plea, the only defense I have is that as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. There I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. So now all I know is grace. That's our only answer, friends. Every other answer will find you guilty and having to pay the penalty. But the good news is that when he died, Jesus took our sin. And the good news is that when Jesus rose again, he gave us his new, never-ending life. So in Jesus, we no longer have to be afraid of death. The certainty of death no longer has to hang over us like a rock ready to crush us at any moment so that we go through life cringing and hunched over, waiting for it to fall, not sure when it'll be, so we don't actually get to fully live. Instead, death becomes merely a door that we're waiting to walk through. And we know we will have to walk through it, but we know that what's on the other side of that door is so much better than what I have now. See, when, you're, when you don't know Jesus, it's like you live in a prison cell on death row and you're still looking at a door and that door is death, but you are terrified of when that door opens because you know when that door opens, the guards are leading you to the chamber. The last thing you ever want to see is that door open. But if you were in Christ, you're not in a prison cell, you're in a waiting room. And inside, what you're waiting for is beyond your wildest dreams. The people you love in a place free from sin and suffering and pain. And so you're just, yeah, you'll enjoy life out here, but you've got one eye on that door. And the minute it opens, you say, I'm ready. Let's go. 
That's the difference, friends. The good news for those who trust in Jesus is that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus himself said, fear not. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. I died. No one else in history has said that. I died, past tense, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. We don't have to be afraid of death because Jesus defeated it, and he's alive. He can speak about death in the past tense. And if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Friends, this is the best and greatest news if you are trusting in Jesus. But friend, if you are not, I have to warn you. The Bible is also crystal clear about what awaits you. Jesus said in John 8, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And in John 3, he said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Friends, death is certain. Life is uncertain. So run to Jesus. Only he can take your sins and give you life. Which brings us to the last point. Because life is so short and so unpredictable, how should we live this life that Jesus gives? He's given us life, so what do we do with it? Well, I am so glad you asked. Look at verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shale to which you are going. The preacher's wisdom to us is that because death is certain and life is uncertain, enjoy the life God gives you. Look at verse 9. Do you see where he says, all the days of your vain life that he has given you? That means every day of your life is a gift from God. Every day. And not only has he given you life, he's given you gifts to enjoy in this life. In fact, everything you have comes from God. For what do you have that you did not receive? Now, notice, before, throughout the book, he's mainly been making observations about what's best. He said some things kind of similar earlier. He said, I have observed that it's better to enjoy life. No, no, no. These are no more observations. Now he uses the strongest, most urgent commands he uses in the book. What does he command us to do? First, he says, verse 7, go. Did you catch that word? He didn't have to put that in there. He could have said enjoy life. He said, go. In other words, get busy enjoying life. Get busy living. Don't waste a day. This reminds me of one of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions that he used to shape his life. 
Resolution number five says, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. That's what it's saying, is that as long as you're alive, live. Well, what are we to get busy doing? Eating our bread with joy and drinking our wine with a merry heart. You are commanded to do this in the Bible. Can you believe this? Don't, he's saying, don't just rush through meals. Don't just gulp it down. Just, I got to eat so that I can stay alive. No, 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 no. I learned this in Italy. The Italians loathe the way Americans eat. They say, Americans, you guys eat to live. We live to eat. Do you see the difference? They, we just kind of get enough food and stuff in our bodies so that we can keep going, going, going. They're like, no, no, no. You need to slow down and enjoy the meal. God gave you taste buds for a reason, and he made all these different flavors for us to enjoy. So this afternoon, eat the turkey, the chicken, the ham, the many meat loaves. I mean, praise God, there are loaves of meat. <laughs> enjoy Miss Dora's noodles, stuffing with wild duck, mac and cheese, Harvest salad, sweet potato casserole, pumpkin pie, apple crisp. These are all on the real menu down there. And eat them with joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart. Psalm 104.15 says, God made wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. It's completely fine if you choose not to drink wine. But whatever you drink, you better drink it with joy as a gift of God. And notice, this is unbelievable. Notice why he says to eat and drink with joy. For God has already approved what you do. Now, this doesn't mean that he approves whatever you do in the sense of like, oh, I can just choose my own path and like live the way I want to and he'll approve. No, 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 no. It's not saying that. It means he approves you enjoying his good gifts. How do we know? Because that's why he made them. You don't have to wonder, will God like it if I... If I enjoy this thing, yeah, he will because he gave it to you. Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy 4. He says, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Now, if any of this is either surprising to you or maybe even troubling to you, you may need to rethink your idea of who God is. Because friends, God is the happiest being in existence. He's not some grumpy old man upstairs. That is an abomination. He is the blessed God, the happy God. He is endlessly exuberant. And he loves to share his joy with us. In fact, that's why he made us. He doesn't need us. He didn't create us out of a, he's like, you know what, I'm, I'm missing something. I need, I need more people in my life. No, he said, I've got so much joy. What would make me even happier is I want to share it with people. So, well, I don't have any. I'm going to make people so that I can share this joy with them. And then he gave us a world of gifts to enjoy. This is unbelievable. So what else are we told? Wear white garments and put oil on your head. Both of these things, we're like, why white? What's, these were just symbols of joy, okay? In the culture, they made sense. These are the things you wore to parties, to a festival. Oil is just kind of like nice smelling. So what he's saying here, I'll, I'll translate into modern. He's saying, put on your party clothes. Get your hair did. Fellas, put on your beard oil. Ladies, put on the nice perfume and celebrate. That's what he's calling us to here. He wants us to see that part of wisdom is found in knowing 
we have a lot of things to celebrate. And not just knowing it, but doing it. Friends, one of our, I think this is already true, but one of the things we want to keep growing in is we want to be a church that uses every excuse to celebrate. Why? Because God has given us so many good gifts, why wouldn't we celebrate? And then he says, we don't enjoy this life alone. Verse 9 says to enjoy it with the wife you love. We're not meant to be alone, but to enjoy life together. So even if you're not married, still enjoy life with others. But here, he does focus in on marriage, and I think there's a reason I'll get to in a second. But husbands and wives, don't just tolerate each other in marriage. Enjoy God's gift to you of a spouse. Enjoy life with them. And then finally, he says, whatever work you find to do, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with everything you've got. No half-hearted, like, oh, I'm just going to say, no, no. If you're going to do it, do it well. Now, you might be thinking, man, these all seem like pretty ordinary things. Like, I would have expected, I don't know, something a little more exotic. But do you realize these joys are meant to point us back to what we were made for? This is Eden. In the garden, what did God give Adam? Food to eat, work to do, and a wife to enjoy life with. And God said that was all very good. But then we sinned, and the curse came in. And what did the curse do? It affected these same things. Marriage became hard. Work became difficult. And now we have to eat bread by the sweat of our brow. But then comes Jesus. How does Jesus come? It says in the Gospels that he came eating and drinking. He came to be the bread of life and to bring the new wine. He came to win a bride he loved and to accomplish the work his father gave him. And he did that work with all his might. He gave everything he had, even his life. All so that we could be rescued from sin and restored to enjoy the gifts of God once again. But these joys don't just point us back to what we were made for. They also point us forward to what we were saved for. Because in Revelation, what do we find for those who belong to Jesus? We find a marriage, a meal, and work. Guess what we're wearing? White robes. We will eat our food with joy and drink our wine with a merry heart forever as we enjoy life with the Savior whom we love. Isaiah 25 describes this ultimate thanksgiving it says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. What is that? He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Friends, God made his gifts to be enjoyed. 
We are made to receive and enjoy all of his gifts, but especially the greatest gift he's ever given us, life in his son. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Chapelwood, let's live with all of our might while we do live. And let's enjoy the life God gives us, both now and forever. Would you pray with me? Father, would you help us to celebrate in an appropriate manner today? God, would our hearts have the volume turned up? Would our affections be raised, not artificially, but because we see and savor these glorious truths about your Son? Lord, I pray that you would be magnified now as we hear testimony and celebrate baptism. I just pray that our hearts would be filled to overflowing with gratitude and wonder and worship at your saving power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.